1 John chapter 4. We are going to work through today the famous passage of God is love. It's funny, it did not take me long to find someone writing in such a way that totally destroyed the point of this passage. Um, and I actually, and I ha- didn't have to look too far past my friends to, f- to find, well not my friends, but acquaintances, to find someone who just brutally murdered this passage uh, in a blog post, <laughs> uh, which is just incredibly unfortunate. And I actually had part of it I was going to quote to you this morning, but I decided to cut it out. This passage, I think, is, is very um, misunderstood, misused, abused, um, uh, makes way for a God that's not defined by Scripture, but ultimately is defined by what we want Him to look like. And a lot of people do it in the name of this passage, that God is love. Well, if God is love, He's got to do this, He's got to do that, He's got to look this way, and He's got to act that way, and He's got to feel this way, and He's, he's got to have these actions that line up. And all along what we do is, ultimately we take our definition of love and what makes us feel good, and then we s- kind of eisegete that or we import that into the text and say well this is what it means that God is love well if God is love then he must be all these things well who says what all these things must be well we do so we define love as this way and so then when we come to the text and it says God is love well then God must be the way we define love and when he doesn't fit that mold then then that must not be God right it must be evil man or it must be uh, Satan or so on and so forth. And certainly lots of things that, or certainly everything Satan does is not love, but there are plenty of things that God does that do not appear loving to us because our definition of love is jacked up, is messed up. So, I want to start with chapter 4. We're going to read 7 through 21. And we're going to boogie through this passage today. Starting chapter Verse 7. Paul says, or Paul, John says this Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, though God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us 
so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father, let's ask that as we uh, study your text this morning, Father, that, uh, that we would set aside our definitions of love. We would set aside our perception of this passage and maybe come to it with fresh eyes in such a way that, that uh, your Holy Spirit can give us a better foundation of what this idea of love and God is love and how we love one another and who we love in this one another passage. And uh, Father, we can walk away with um, letting the text interpret um, our feelings, let the text interpret our experience, let the text interpret the way uh, and guide us in the way that we should love and exercise what it is in this passage and let the text show us how you define love. And Father, um, we love you and I pray that that love means more after this passage. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, given to ourselves, given to our own desires, we do not gravitate toward love. We don't. None of us gravitate toward love. We would not, given to ourselves, we would not be a people of love. Our world is not a world of love, no matter how much the hippies think. The broader church culture is not a culture of love. Given to ourselves, we do not tend toward love. That's not our tendency. That's not our natural bent. Is, our bend is not towards love. But everyone in the church says, well, I love this person. I love that person. You know, 1 John, I want to remind us of last week, 1 John 3.18, I'm sorry, from a couple weeks ago, says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There's an action part. There's an active part of this love. There's a display of this love. And my question that kind of follows up with that is, what do the deeds of the average church person say? Let's, let's bring it in a little bit narrow. How, what do the deeds of those in this body say about their love for the brethren or for the body? I mean, even in our, again, our context here, what does our deed say? Given to ourselves, we tend to gravitate towards the following. Isolation, selfishness, manipulation for personal agenda. And I think that kind of gets to the right there. When I say manipulation for a personal agenda is where our love for the brethren, our love for other people, what purpose is that serving? Is that serving to advance that person? For the benefit of that person? Or is it just for the benefit of that, of that person so long as it makes you feel good? You see, oftentimes our love for other people or our actions that look like love for other people ultimately serve us. 
that's just manipulation. That's selfishness. That's not love. That's not what he is talking about in this passage. Does the passage say, does, does it say, not the passage, but does it say, our actions, does it say I love a person when I exclude them from my life in order to go the direction that I want to go? Does that say that I love that person when I, when I don't involve them in my life? Does it say that I love a group of people when I don't grow in my faith in order that they might be blessed as well? So we think about the body. Does it, does it say that you love your brother and if you're lackadaisical in your faith? No, it doesn't. Because you're a hand that should be growing in the likeness of Jesus, largely for the benefit of the body and the kingdom as it's built through the body. So when you're lackadaisical about your faith, that doesn't say that you love the body. It says that you hate the body. It says, I don't care. Does it say that I love my church when I don't welcome lost people to the family of God? I'm just giving us examples. There's a thousand more examples of this, but these are some things I would think we have to ask ourselves. Does, does it show love when, when I don't do these things? The reality is we can say we love and have love for the body of Christ, but, but we have so much room to grow. I would say even in our body here, I, I would, if we're comparing, which I don't like typically comparing, but if we compare ourselves at least to a lot of my church experience, we, we have a love here that is, that is very um, unique. The wonder of that, though, is even though we have a love that's unique, that many of us, I hear words of enjoyment and expressions of enjoyment of that love all the time, but the reality is we have so much more to enjoy. We have so much further to go. Let's not be satisfied with that. Let's not be, okay, well, we're, we have more love than most churches in the area, so, so let's, just, let's just maintain the status quo. No, 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 no. There's so much more room for enjoyment, so much more depth that could be attained in that. Let me remind us what Jesus said. John 13, verse uh, 35. says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love, if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. Now I want to remind you both the context and the gospel of John, that is to the disciples. And Jesus is not talking about their love for the world, although there is clearly a love for the world that we should have. But he's talking about in the gospel of John in chapter 13, their love for one another. Their, as disciples, their love for one another. The same thing back in this passage in 1 John chapter 4 and 7 through 21. He's talking about love for one another, love for the brethren. This is not a love for people in general. Although certainly there, there's implications for love for people in general from this passage. But that's not John's point. John's point here is a love that these fellow believers have for each other. And I just want to remind us that this falls right in line with what Jesus says back in the Gospel of John. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We'd be known by our love for one another. And we've talked about this before, but I think there's a lot of reason, like, like the world doesn't want to be a part of churches, is because they don't love each other. It's just a social club, it's just a convenient club, where we just kind of get together and and, and when it stops being convenient for me, when it stops being as fun, I just shop around for a new place. And, and that's, to the world, they go, why would I want to be a part of that? You know, I can go join the VFW Hall and, and get just as much, if not more, enjoyment out there. 
So Jesus says we'll be known by our love for one another. Now, let me give us kind of a warning when we get to thinking about this passage, God is love. The danger in this passage is in the idea of like summation. To take one thing and use that as the summation of something else. To use that word as the, to describe the totality of this person over here. Uh, that'll make more sense as, we, as I talk through this in just a second. John is not saying that the summation of God is love. So he's not saying that God can be described in just this word love, and that's all there is to God. Like John's not saying that, and that's where many people take this passage and just totally mess the whole thing up, because they'll say, well, God is love. And then they use that word love to say, when it comes to like God's justice, then everything through God, the idea of like justice, what well, has to look loving, and it has to look loving, what we don't realize, it has to look loving by my definition of the word love. So therefore, to cast someone to hell could not be loving because that doesn't fit into my definition of love. So we take this idea of love and say, well, God, that's all there is to God is he's just a God of love. And anything that doesn't look like love, particularly my definition of love, that must not be God. So we're taking the word love and using that to describe the entire being of God. Now, there is a sense in which everything God does is love, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But to take this passage and just say, okay, well, that all there is to God is love. To avoid justice, mercy, um, those kind of things is, is, to, to, is not the point here. Instead, what John is saying is that the summation of love is God. Not the other way around. So everything we want to know about love is wrapped up in God. Does that make sense? Instead of everything we want to know about God is wrapped up in the term love, it's everything we want to know about the term love is wrapped up in the person of God. So two very different things. So God could not, for example, like our definition of love, so God could not cause us pain because He's love. If God's love, then He can't, ordained pain and trials to enter my life because he he is loving or god could not send again someone to hell because he is love and this is clearly not john's intent john's intent here is not to say that god came from the idea of love but that the idea of love has come from god love is not the summation of god but instead god is the summation of love everything we want to know about love is found in god and everything that god does is loving it's kind of the broad thought that's going on in this passage everything we want to know about god about love is found in god and everything that god does is loving so here we have this this love that is for the brethren that john is that john is going to help us understand where this love for the brethren has come from and how this love becomes a reality in our lives so where the love comes from and how it becomes a reality in our lives, because again, what's our tendency is towards selfishness, towards our own agenda. It's not towards loving the brethren. The big question then is how does knowing God impact my love for others? That's kind of the question we want to answer this morning. How does my knowing God impact my love for others? Because remember, we've been asking this question how do I know that I know God? One of the answers to how do I know that I know God is my love for the brethren. Well, my love for the brethren can't be defined by our own made-up definitions. So John gives us 
a definition, a working definition for what does it mean to love each other. Now, if we sinfully tend toward lacking love, then how can this change? How can this lacking in love change? Because also remember the point here, how do I know that I know God? Because the goal here for John is assurance of salvation, that you would know So my challenge to us is not that, okay, well, I have love for the brethren. That love is defined as I'd like to define it. And because I have this love, it's defined by the way I want to define it. And now I can have assurance of my faith. That's not the way it works. My love for the brethren has to be defined as the way God has defined it in order for it to result in true assurance rather than a false assurance of my salvation. I think many Christians look at their life and they go, well, I love the people. I love it, but it's defined the way I want to. And then they walk around with a false assurance. Then when times get rough, their love tends to dissipate, revealing ultimately that it was by their definition and not by God's. That it was from their source of creating love versus from God's redeeming love. And so the time just tests it, and then it just kind of whittles away, and then you kind of see, okay, it wasn't really love as God would define it. It was just, it was selfishness, or it was, you know, whatever the case may be. The reality is we begin to love others through redemption. Our love for others begins in our lives upon redemption. When God redeems us, John has been telling us what happens. God begins to abide in us. So if we are to understand the love that should be coming from us, then we must understand the origination of that love as being from God. So if we're going to understand the love that should be coming from us, we need to understand where that love has come from. Notice what John is saying in this passage. Overall, we begin to love others when two things happen, or because of two things. We begin to love others because the nature of God is love. Because the nature of God is love. And we begin to love others because the manifestation of this nature is in the incarnation of His Son. Because the nature of God is love. And then secondly, we begin to love others because the manifestation of this nature, the nature of of God is love. Because the manifestation of that nature is in the incarnation of His Son. Because the manifestation of this nature is in the incarnation of His Son. So, This brings us to our first big point from 1 John chapter 4, and that is this, the origin and perpetuating source of love is God Himself. The origin and perpetuating source of love is God Himself. Perpetuating meaning He is, it's the continual like, like, providing for the continual movement and, and driving force of, of that love is God himself. First John 4, 7-8. through 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, the text is saying two distinct things concerning God and love. There's two distinct 
things concerning God and love. First one is this. Love is from God. Love is from God. All the good that love is, is from God. The essence of love is in God. The perfection of love is found in God. John is not saying that love is something external from God or that it is something that he gives away. No, John is saying that God is the source of love. It's not something apart from him he just hands to us, but it's something that flows from him. It's something that is in him. It's something that if we are going to display the love of God, then God has to be in us. He has to abide in us. It's not just a character trait that he gives to us. It's him living it out in us. Love finds its origin in God, and love radiates, if you will, like the idea of radiating heat. It radiates from God. I like what Arthur Pink, or A.W. Pink says. He says, love is not merely of God, as every good gift is of God. It is of God as being his own property, his own affection, his own love. It is where it is found, the very love with which God loves. It's his. It's his being. It's his nature. That's what John is saying. Love is from God, not in that he gives it away, but that it is his, always his, always will be his. It's a part of him. It's his very nature. The second thing that John says very distinctly concerning God and love is that God is love. And you say, well, isn't that kind of the same thing? No, it's, it's actually not. John, in the first point, is saying that love is from God, basically saying that love is of God. Now he turns to God himself. He now is saying that God is love and that everything he does can only be described as love. Every action that God does is love. If you want to know what love is, look at what God does. Old Testament including. None of us can say that everything we do is love, right? I mean, it might be, it might be love, it just may not be love for other people, it might be love for ourselves. So maybe, yes, everything we do is love, it's just a matter of who's the object of that love, everybody else or myself. But you get the point when I say not all of us, not any of us can say that everything we do is, can be classified as love, or at least would be classified as love as other people would, would hope. <laughs> so what are some things that we do, or we should do, that are not typically considered loving? How about rebuking a brother or sister in their sin? Is that does that feel like love? That doesn't feel like love to me. But is that loving? Well, I think we'd have to say, yeah. How about standing firm on issues of sin, like homosexuality? Is that, is that seen as loving? No, it's not seen as loving. It's seen as hatred, right? And not accepting and so on and so forth. How about t- telling your child no even when they really want something? Does that feel loving? No, it doesn't. How about spanking a child when they've misbehaved? Does that feel loving? It doesn't feel loving to me. It's only when I think about God's definition of love that these things begin to feel like love. Again, I like what Pink, A.W. Pink says at this point. He says, love in God never is, never has been like a latent germ. 
needing outward influences to make it spring up. Or like a slumbering power waiting for occasions to call it forth. If it were so, it could not be truly said that in himself, in his very manner of being, God is love. It's not just something that sits in God, but it's something that permeates everything God does. It's not just a part of God, but it's a descriptor of everything that is God. Does that make sense? So, John says two things here. Love is from God, and that God is love. Now, God, now, John says other things in those verses, but we'll get to those in a second. But for now, God, love is from God, and God is love. Now, the implication here is, is that the knowledge of God as love leads men to love one another. Of course, ladies as well. But the implication here is that if I know God, then that's going to lead, if I know God as love particularly, then it's going to lead me to love one another. A person cannot come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. There's a song by Beautiful Eulogy. It talks about mercy. And he says you can't be merciful unless you've experienced the mercy of God. It's the same thing here. You can't be loving unless you've experienced the love of God. Again, the love of God as Scripture would define the love of God, right? We keep fighting against our define our def- definition of the love of God. So the question is, are you growing in your knowledge of God? You see, we don't just love more or better by resolving to do so. We love more slash better by growing in our knowing of God. We grow in our love by growing in our knowing of God. Now, I love what John does here. He doesn't stick with just simply describing God in some sort of abstract theological concept. Like he doesn't just go, you know, here's this concept of, of God's love, but what's he do? He proceeds immediately in telling us how God showed his love. What's the display of God's love? The ultimate or the grand display of God's love. And that is this. God's love was manifested among us in His Son. Now, yes, His Son, I want to give you, there's, these words are chosen specifically. Like, God's love was displayed in His Son, yes, for us to see. But God's love is manifested in His Son because that's where the love radiates from. Again, because love is not something that God just gives to be like, that's external of Him, but His love is manifested in His Son on this earth. Okay, that's part of why this is important. Now John John's fighting here against this, again, what's being taught is that, that it was the person, like this human person named Jesus, and then the Christ ascended upon him, but it was kind of like this disconnection, right? It wasn't like, it wasn't true incarnation. But here John is saying that the nature of God as love came as a person, Jesus. The nature of God is in Jesus, like Jesus is love, that particular aspect of God's nature that he is loving didn't just come as a part of this man, but is this man. 
was manifested in him. The wonderful thing here is that there's more to God's love than just some theoretical or theological understanding of it. There was a display of it. A grand display. Let's read 1 John 4, 9 through 10. It says this, In the love of God, or in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Chapter 4, verse 14. He says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of of the world. You see, the full nature of God, and particularly His love, was made perfect among us. It was made perfect among us in His Son Jesus. He walked with us, He talked with us. Now, the end goal of God's manifestation, I want to kind of jump quickly here because of time, but the end goal of God's manifestation of His love was ultimately propitiation. The end goal of the manifestation of God's love was propitiation. The climax of God's love as it was manifested in His Son is in the payment for our sins. Now what was, follow me here, what was the just judgment for our sin? The infinite, eternal wrath of God, right? But an infinite amount because of our infinite sin against an infinitely holy God. So an infinite amount of the wrath of God poured out for our sin Now, who was Jesus? Who was He? He was God, right? He was the manifestation of God's love in this passage. This is God Himself. So what is the ultimate display of God's love as John presents it here? It is God Himself bearing the wrath of God Himself for the sins of people who did not love Him. That's what John says is the pinnacle of God's love. Because God's love, the pinnacle of God's love is not just that Jesus came to the earth and lived this life and suffered like a human being like you and I. That's not the pinnacle of his love. The pinnacle of, of his love is not, is not that he, he gave his life for three years to walk with us. It's not that he just endured some beatings by a whip. That's not the pinnacle of God's love. It's, it's the moment when God poured out His wrath on Himself to pay the price for your sin and my sin. That is the kind of love that John says will radiate from those who have been redeemed. Now what kind of love is this? I mean, think about this. Is this the kind of love that puts oneself first? Is this the love that seeks our own interest even to the demise of others? It doesn't seem like that to me. Now notice two factors concerning the nature of this love that we see from this passage. Two factors concerning the nature of this love of God. First of all, it's self-sacrificing. 
The nature of this love. So we're getting into a def- definition of love. We just gave you kind of the, the grand display of this love. Now, now if we look at that grand display of God's love in the propitiation or the pouring out of his wrath. Remember, remember propitiation means like wrath absorber. It's, it's, it's where Jesus absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. So getting towards the definition of love and love for the brethren so that we can live this out, we first have this, what is the pinnacle, what is the ultimate display of that love? It's in the propitiation. Now, when we think of the propitiation, what are the things that we see in this? First of all, it's a self-sacrifice. If Jesus is truly God, then ultimately God himself is paying the price for our sin. He's giving of himself. Guys, God didn't just give birth to some other being or create some other being so that he could sacrifice him and so continue on as God. You guys understand that, right? That's why the deity of Christ is part of why it's so important or part of what, I guess, comes from understanding properly the deity of Christ. Instead, God gives himself. Guys, otherwise, God devised a plan for which someone else could pay the price on behalf of us. So first factor in the nature of this love is self-sacrificing. The second factor is it's action done for the benefit of others. Action done for the benefit of others. Guys, God's action here was not well-wishing and I'll pray for you. That's not what God did, right? Well, you all are in terrible, you guys are in great distress. I'll pray for you. There you go. Instead, it was active. Now, there's two things here, as kind of as a sub sub points here. But uh, first is again that it was action. There was it was active. God did something about the problem. Second of all, it was for the benefit of others. So this action done was for the benefit of others. I mean, God is the most uh, giving of benefit. Or he's the most philanthropic person ever. And God is the biggest giver ever. This is an action done on the benef- for the benefit of others. God did not clearly, right? I mean, we, are, we got that, right? Like we, didn't deserve his, we didn't deserve the propitiation, right? I mean, we all got that. He didn't have to do it. Um, it wasn't necessary to his being as God to provide payment for our sin. He could have been glorified by justly sending us to hell. I mean, that, right? We, we got that. I hope so. He does this for our benefit. Now, ultimately, yeah, it does benefit his glory, but it's also for our benefit. Now, I want to address those who are not sure if they're a follower of Christ or maybe wandering with of that, and then I want to address Christians, <coughs> non-Christian. I have some, a series of questions. First question is this. Would you self-sacrifice yourself for your loved ones? Would you give up your life for your loved ones? Would you willingly lay down your life for your spouse, child, for your mother, for your father, for your sons, daughters, grandchildren, 
right this moment, if it was called upon you, would you do that? Second question, would you sacrifice yourself even if they didn't want you to do it, but you knew that they needed you to? What if they weren't aware of their need for you to die for them? Would you do it anyways? I think you probably would. Would you sacrifice, next question, would you sacrifice your life for a friend or a coworker that you spend time with or hang out with? Next question, would you sacrifice your life for the random person driving in the car next to you? Maybe the one that just cut you off. Would you do that? What, next question, would you sacrifice your life for someone who hated you, despised you, was even maybe your enemy? Would you give down, would you lay down your life for them? The Bible says that you despise God. That your very acts to earn your own place before God says that you despise His self-sacrificial work through Jesus. And yet, God gave His life for you. And God laid down His life for you. I can't just stop there. The question is, what must you do if you realize that situation? You must repent. You must repent for your sins and stop trusting in your sacrifice and trust in His. Trust in Jesus as the payment for your sins and not yourself. That He gave His life for you. Now Christian, does your love for the body show that you understand the love that God has for you? So if just this little bit that we've talked about, the love of God and displayed in the incarnation and ultimately the propitiation, does your love display that kind of love for the body? The reality is many of us do not show the love of God because we haven't experienced the love of God and we don't experience the love of God because we don't think we need the love of God. And I just want to remind you, Christian, listen to me. You have been so loved by God. You know that? Because when the world hates you, it's just a reminder of there is nothing that satisfies except God's love. When your family doesn't love you unconditionally, it's just a reminder of the unconditional love of the Father. When you desire to be loved, but what you settle for always leaves you empty, it's just a reminder that only God's love can satisfy. And Christian, all of man's love is still broken. And it's just a reminder of the unbroken love of God. So let's stop Christians, let's stop settling for the love of man and only be satisfied in God's love which will be largely lavished upon us this side of eternity through the redeemed hearts of His saints as His love radiates from their redemption. Let's settle for that. Let's settle for the love of God coming from the redemption of God's people. And the kids are like, uh, they are fussy. And that's Mr. Silas is who that is. All right, y'all got that as my son interrupts us? Uh, the reality is many of us do not show this love, and we, we stop settling for the love of man. All right, third main point. Our nature, our nature is not to show the love of God. Now, just in case you haven't gotten this yet in the sermon, I thought we'd make it emphatic. 
our nature is not to show the love of God. All right, now follow me. We cannot begin to understand love by considering the nature of our love for God. Does that make sense? The starting point for divining love cannot be our nature and how we would define love or how we have experienced love. Rather, rather, love is to be seen in the prior act of God who loves us and expressed His love by sending His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's how we define love. We look back to what John just said, and that is that love displayed or manifested in His Son Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. If we're going to define love, we begin there. Now, if you don't have a love that is self-sacrificing, active, and for the benefit of others, then you don't have the Son of God in the flesh. Guys, if you don't have a love, that's where the love comes from. So let me just practical for a second. So we think of like TV preachers. They claim financial gaining promises, esteem building phrases, and life changing man made promises. These are all for selfish gain. Just listen to them. It's all about how my life can be better now. It's about your best life now, right? I mean, it's all in the title. I mean, it's perfect. Not, not even just Joel Osteen's, but other stuff as well. Guys, you can't have selfish gain your best life now as your focus and still claim the incarnate Son of God. Why? Because the incarnate Son of God is anti-self-focus and personal gain. The incarnate Son of God is self-sacrificial for the benefit of others. If anything, the book should be how I can help you get your best life now. How I can live my life in such a way that it brings the best life for those around me. That should be the title. Because these are mutually ex- exclusive. The giving of God's Son is the essence of selfless love. The incarnation is the essence of selfless love. And to believe in the action of God must result in God's selfless love radiating from us. If what radiates from us is selfish love, then ultimately we don't believe in the incarnation. That's the reality here. If I believe in the incarnation, then what's going to happen is the self-giving love of God must come through me. So you cannot claim self, like self-focused, personal agenda, growing, motivated love and say that you ultimately believe in the incarnation. There was a question posed in our house gathering last week was, but you get to these people like in particularly TV preachers, not all of them are bad, for the record, but um, a lot of them. And uh, the question was, well, they say they believe in the Incarnation. Then how do they have this love over here? How do they teach these false doctrines? And this is what part of what we're getting at here is that John is saying that if you don't have an incarnate Son of God, you don't have a love of God. Now, if if you don't have a love of God, so self-motivated, selfish love, if that's the love you have, then you don't have an incarnate Son of God. Make sense? So if you don't have an incarnate Son of God, then you're not going to have the love of God in your life. But if you don't have the love of God in your life, then you don't have an incarnate Son of God. Just both ways. So you can't claim 
that you believe in the self-giving, active, for the benefit of others, love that God has, and then perpetuate selfishness, financial gain for my benefit, that this life's all about me and my best life now, you, you just don't go together. This kind of selfish love radiates from Satan, not from the incarnate Son of God. But when God abides in you, it's a selfless, self-giving, sacrificial, active, for the benefit of others, love that comes from God. Our nature is not to love others, but instead to love ourselves. Now, if I love myself to the exclusion of others, then I get my reward now. You understand that? If it's about me now, then I get my reward now then. Which ultimately, I'm going to steal some of the John Piper's language here, but it's ultimately like hating myself because of the reward that I would have. So if I sacrifice other people to get what I want now, I'm getting my reward now, but then if you think eternally, I'm not going to get my reward later. Which ultimately is like hating yourself, because you're settling for something terribly uh, disproportionate to the reward that you would get later. But instead, if I love others as God has loved me, I'm actually loving myself to the highest degree because of the future that is mine in God. So if I love others now like I should, which is going to look more like a denial of self, then ultimately I'm loving myself to the greatest degree because then my reward is in heaven, which is eternal and infinite. 1 John 4, 8 says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Guys, our relationship status with God, particularly concerning His unhindered love for us by the covering of our sins, was not made possible by anything that we did. The passage does not say that we loved God and therefore propitiation was provided for our sins. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, John is not saying, John did not say that we had to take the first step and then God made us right before him. The passage does not say, John is not saying that when we did not love God, I'm sorry, the passage is saying that even when we did not love God, that he loved us and paid the price for our sins. It wasn't because we were ready or because we were worthy or because we were righteous or because we said enough prayers or because we were part of the right church or because we were baptized or because we joined a church or be, because we read enough theological books or because we teach a Sunday school class or we lead a house gathering or because we've, we prayed enough or we said the right prayer or we walked an aisle. That's not what he says. He says that he loved us first in spite of our hatred for him. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 would tell us. Guys, if we're going to understand love, we cannot begin with ourselves. We have to begin with God, because our nature is not to love. We have facades of love. I mean, I hope you guys understand that. I hope you walk away going, but I think I love people. I want you to walk away going, I need to evaluate those. Is my love for other people that I think is love, is it actually love, or is it ultimately serving to bring 
joy to me and, and, and stuff for my gain. If we're going to understand love, we cannot begin with ourselves, and we cannot begin particularly with our experiences. Now, Christian, if you did renovate us, which I hope you did, if I asked you to divine the love of God before you walked in here this morning, how many of you would have defined it by means of storytelling of your past? I would say stop. Stop. That storytelling of your past is subjective, fallible, potentially jacked up. It's your view of God's love. Don't start there. Remember, your tendency and the tendency of those around you is not to love. What makes you think you can interpret love rightly? That's my question, just practically. If your tendency is towards hatred and self-love then what makes you think that you can interpret rightly your experiences, your subjective experiences? We can't begin there. So it can't be, oh, well, how would I define the love of God? Well, you know, there was this time in my life where God just showed up, and, uh, you know, he just, he just took care of that illness in my life, and, and uh, you know, it, it was just, I, I just know God loves me because he did that in my life. My guess is that all the stories that you would have shared about your experience of God's love would have been you being the recipient of such love. Isn't that interesting? Instead, we begin with the objective truth of God's word and see how his love is defined therein. John says that the definition of God's love finds its ultimate display in the self-sacrifice as the payment for our sins. That's where we begin as we define love, if someone asks you to define the love of God, begin there. It's in God giving himself for a people who did not like him, loved him, care anything about him, but instead still paid the price because he loved them. If anything, you begin love with defining the someone giving of themselves for, for those who didn't even want it. Now, as we move forward, our redeemed nature will radiate God's love. In a way, it's a manifestation of God's love inside of us because it's about God abiding in us and us abiding in God. So John says that, that we are in, that now that we are in right relationship with God, that this love will radiate from us. 1 John 4, 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is the person who knows that they know God, right? This is the person that knows that they know God. The love of God is displayed in the incarnate Son of God in His death on the cross is coming from the depths of your soul. Someone who knows that they know God is that the love that is displayed in the incarnate Son of God leading Him to the cross is coming from the depths of your soul. Now we have to be careful, because without context, one might conclude that anyone who loves knows God. That's anyone who knows God is going to display the love of God, but not everyone who loves, or at least appears to show love, actually knows God. Right? Because if we go back to the passage, it says, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, right? Not too long ago, I was in a coffee shop and had a person tell me, well, I just think we're all God's children because we all generally love each other. And she probably would have cited this passage, 1 John 4, 7. Anyone who loves has been born of God. So anyone who loves and wears a tie-dye t-shirt knows God, right? Context is vitally important because that's not all of the picture. John would have us, just for sake of time, John would have us understand that the person who knows God has two things. Two things, at least. First of all, right belief in God. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Right belief. Second thing is that you have supreme affection for the Father and the Son. John is not saying that our supreme affection is for each other. Our supreme affection for the, for the Father and the Son I mean, just think about the language in 1 John 3, 1 through 2 here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, children of God, who's your supreme affection going to be for? It's going to be for the Father if you're a child. And He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. I mean, clearly there's... There's an affection here, a supreme affection for the Father and the Son. And there's other verses to, to support that, but just to stick with John here. John just said that love radiates from the nature of God, right? That's what we've been talking so far in this passage. That love is perpetuated from its source, which is God. And just the same, this unique love that radiates from God radiates from the hearts of those who have been redeemed by God. Why? Because this heart knows God. Because this heart abides in God. And God abides in that heart. So the recipients of God's love have no choice as to their response. This is where being determines doing. Identity drives rhythm. Is that a heart that's, that's experienced the love of God has no choice as to their response. 1 John 4, 11-13, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and the love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. 1 John 4, 19, We love because, why? He first loved us. We love because God loved first. We ought to love one another. That phrase, we ought to love one another, is based on God loved us. John's question is this, how could someone who has experienced this divine love not be moved to love other people the same way? It's not possible. In John's mind, he's going, this doesn't make any sense. If you've experienced the love of God, then you will love other people in the same way. He said it doesn't make, any other, it doesn't make sense that it could be any other way. God's love lived through us is evidence of His abiding in us. How do I know that I know God? I love the people of God. What does loving the people of God look like? We look to the cross. We look to the gospel. Now, second to last big thought here. Love and fear 
cannot coexist. You see, one of the biggest hindrances to our love for one another is fear. One of our biggest hindrances to utter abandonment, like in our just love for God, is fear. Love and fear cannot coexist. 1 John 4, 18-19. There is no fear in love. There you go. It cannot coexist. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Two points here. One, we don't have to fear anything in our relationship with God. We don't have to fear anything in our relationship with God. Now, obviously, this is for those who are redeemed, those who, who have been saved by God. We don't have to fear anything in our relationship with God. Now, certainly, when it comes to sin, there is fear of God's punishment, right? It should be. Particularly a fear of hell. But the reality is that if we are abiding in God, then we have no fear of this future punishment. We have no fear of this future punishment. But I want to encourage us to think through, there's also a fear that wells up in us as we live this life. Not just a fear of, of what's to come in the future, but a fear of right now. But there's also this, this fear, like, let me give you some examples, a fear that my sin has caused God to turn His head. Does anybody feel that way? That my punishment is such that God is turning His head from me. Um, yeah, you usually hear that in the phrase of, well, I just feel like my prayers hit the ceiling. And usually what's coming along with that is that there's some level of fear and there's some level of I have to earn my way so that my, my prayers go beyond that ceiling. I have to do enough good. I don't pray enough, so because I don't pray enough, my sins hit the ceiling and fall back, or my prayers hit the ceiling and fall back down to me. Or I fear that my sin has built a wall between the Father and me. The reality is that sin certainly does hinder a relationship with God. But it's not that this love, but it's not that his love for you begins to dissipate, right? I think many of us, when we think about our this relationship with God, our fear leads us to think, well, I don't. Maybe God doesn't love me, right? Maybe he, maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe this is because he's his love for me is waning. Guys, it's not that his arms. Like I think for many of us, when we think of this fear, like it, it's kind of like God's arms move from this to you know, to this, right? And that, that's, so why wouldn't I fear a God who's got his arms closed and his face scowled at me? Guys, the reality is it's more like the Father is there, but you have placed a wall of fear in between you. And this fear is your own doing. John says this fear shouldn't even be here. Because love casts out this fear. The reality is, is that you were never right before God because of anything you did anyways. And you're not right before God because of anything you continue doing today. Ultimately, it's because of the work of Jesus. You should have no fear. You can, you can walk in this mutual love with the Father. Your loving is because He first loved you. Now, clearly, we're going to balance all that with persevering in the faith, right? And, and living righteously and, and pursuing holy lives and, and all that thing. But, but ultimately, that, become, that happens because of God's doing in our lives. 
It's because of our being, because of who we are in Jesus, that this stuff over here happens with righteousness and holiness. So it's not a license to just, to just forget pursuing holiness and righteousness and, and casting off sin. But the reality is, is when we do sin, when we fail at pursuing righteousness, God's not standing there in such a way that we should fear Him, but that we are welcomed back into His presence to seek forgiveness and experience His grace and mercy for the sin that which we just committed. He says this love of God that has, He has for us cast out all fear. When we screw up, we don't have to fear God. We run to God. We run to Him. The beautiful picture of the prodigal son. You have the son who screwed up royally, but what happens? He goes running to the father. But the, the point there is not, oh, look what the son did. The point is, look what the father did. So there's two points. One is we don't have to fear anything in our relationship with God. By implication, we don't have to fear anything in our relationships with each other either. We don't have to fear anything in our relationships with each other. Let me, let me ask you some, a series of questions here for you to think through. How many needs in the body go unmet because of a fear that a family member does not love you? Well, they won't, they won't help me with that. Because they, they don't. They don't self-sacrificially love me, right? There's a fear. How many sins go unaddressed in the body because of a fear that if I address them, that family member will not love me anymore? Think about that. Well, if I, if I address the sin in their life, they're going to get thoroughly upset at me, and, and uh, they're going to take off and they're going to hate me if I address that sin in their life. Now, I mean, don't do it as a jerk, right? We're assuming the best here. Like you went there in love and kindness, but still a fear. What are they going, you know, how are they going to respond? How much sanctification is ruined because we try to tie fear and love together? Imagine this. Imagine if you knew that you could approach anyone in this body at any time with great love concerning anything from a need all the way to sin in their life and yours. What would that look like? What would that look like if there was no fear in the body? We could go to each other with anything at any time. What if there was no fear? What would, what would be the possibilities for the kingdom of God? You see, fear is crippling. Fear puts you not only in neutral, puts you in reverse. Well, love is restoring and perpetuating forward. Now, last big question is this. How do we love one another? How do we love one another? Now, clearly we can, we'll have more time to talk about these in house gatherings this week, but how do we love one another? We love each other as the Father loved us. A humble, sacrificial giving of ourselves to each other. A humble, sacrificial giving of ourselves to each other. I'll give you time to write that before we run through the rest of this. A humble, sacrificial giving of ourselves to each other. All right, some of you all write slow. I'm moving. 1 John 4, 20 through 21. If you're writing the whole sentence, I'll give you a little more credit. But if you're just filling in the blank, gosh, you're slow. 
1 John 4, 20 through 21. If anyone says, all right, here we go. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has sent cannot love God whom he, uh, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So again, we must look at how the Bible defines this love for us. Like love for each other is not defined by, if you know the popular book, Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Um, Love is also not defined by how I want to be loved or how I receive love best or what makes me feel the greatest. Guys, love is first and foremost defined by the sending and slaying of the Son. Love is first and foremost defined by the sending and the slaying of the Son. We're going to walk very quickly through Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 1 through 4, read this with me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul says that we should this, we should have the same mind, have the same love, do nothing from selfish ambition, do nothing from conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. Look not for our interests, but look to the interests of others. Here we are, we're building a definition of what love looks like. But look what, John, what Paul does, he does the same thing John did. Verse 5 through 8, where does he go? He goes to the display of God of God's love manifested in His Son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind that would display this kind of love, this love for each other, and this, this preference for each other is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not yours that you earned. It's not yours that you came up with. It's not yours that you legalistically practiced until you accomplished it. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Because of who Jesus is, this is who you are now. He says, verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by the taking, of, uh, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says that. Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, found in human form, humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Think about that, the God of the universe. Ultimate display of humility and servitude in dying on the cross. Not just dying on the cross. Of course Paul would be assuming here this death on the cross as resembling not just the physical death, of the God of the universe, although that's a great magnitude in and of itself, but the pouring out of the wrath of God on himself on the cross for the payments of those sins. What happened? The incarnation and propitiation happened as the ultimate display of God's love. That's what Paul says too. That this self-giving that you're supposed to have, this unity of mind and, and humbly giving of yourselves to each other, Jesus did that on the cross. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 25 through 26, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
Guys, ultimately, Jesus hated his life in this world. Now, what do I mean by Jesus hated his life in this world? He did not live for the passions of his flesh. He did not live for the desires of an evil heart. He did not fear anything more than he feared God. The question is, how do we love each other? What will the radiating love of God from our redeemed hearts look like? It would look like us hating our lives in this world and giving it to God, thus resulting in a humble, sacrificial giving of ourselves to each other. Let me give a little more comments to this idea of hating this life. This requires a hating of this life, but in pursuit of something eternal. See, when we live for ourselves, when we live in a way that disregards those around us, we are living, we are loving this life, and the trade-off is we lose the next life. Remember, whoever saves his life will lose it, right? Whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. See, Jesus is talking about an eternal perspective. So what happens is when we give of ourselves, like, like I think the gospel requires us to give of ourselves to each other in this life in such a way that it looks like we hate our own lives. For what purpose? That we would gain life in the next. But ultimately, what are you doing? You're loving your life to the fullest because what you would gain in the next is far greater than the gifts that you would get right now, the reward that you would get right now. I know it's a little bit of a deep thought there, so chew on that for a bit. We'll talk more about that this week in House Gathering. Jesus hated his life in this world. But he didn't hate his life in an ultimate sense. He hated his life in this world. That's why the tag phrase is there. In doing so, he ultimately loved his life because look what happened as a result next in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, just continuing the verse that we're in. Therefore, God has highly exalted him because Jesus hated his life in this world, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we hate this life in giving it to God, and therefore each other, we too will be highly exalted with Christ. Just go read Ephesians two. What's going to happen? We right up there with Christ, being poured, the immeasurable riches of His grace being poured upon us. If you want to, to read more, uh, John Piper in Desiring God does a wonderful job ex- explaining, helping us think through this idea of hating this life in this world for the pursuit of a greater reward, and that ultimately be the most loving thing we can do for our lives. I would encourage you to read that, but the last couple thoughts here. Let us put off our selfish desires. Right? That's what John's pushing us to. Let us look to God for our definition of love for each other. Let's not think, okay, well that person needs to feel loved in this way because that's the way I feel loved. No, let's love them in the way God has called us to love each other. Let us be known to the world by our love for one another. Like, right? I know in recent days, in the past seven, eight months, 
some of our new people that have joined Renovation Church, one of their things has been there's, there's a community here that, that's very unique. What, what, what is that? It's, it's, it's us being known by the love for each other. Um, so I hope that's encouraging. But let's keep pushing on towards that. Let's, let's push hard for that. The reality is, if we need to love more, then it shows that you need the gospel. You need to understand the gospel more. Now, as you know the gospel more, then it shows just how much more you need to love. We'll pray for us, and then we'll worship. Father, thank you for your word this morning, and thank you that uh, you've created us with a heart that needs to love and with a heart that needs to be loved. And then you've not left us searching for a love that would fulfill that need. But Father, you provided and, and shown us a love that fills that need, and then you've defined that for us, and you've given us a picture of it, and you manifested that love, that, that can, the only love that can satisfy us. And, and Father, you've, you've given us the body to practically experience and practice that love, both to give and to receive that love. And so, Father, I pray that, that uh, by your grace, that we would be a people that love each other. Why? So that we would display the incarnate Son of God and your work through Him in the propitiation for our sins. Oh, that's why we love. Ultimately, to display your love for us. And Father, your love that is perfect and was displayed in the cross. And Father, we love ultimately because you first loved us and because you abide in us as those whom you've redeemed. And so Father, let us not mistake our love. It's not what we conjure up, but it's simply your love radiating through our redemption. As in your son's name we pray. Amen.